The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, and disclosures for all speakers, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Yeah, unfortunately, and this is also a question I get from patients and friends and family all the time, is about CBD, and we really don't have adequate evidence to comment on CBDs. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call focuses on an article titled Cannabis-Based Products for Chronic Pain that appeared in the June 7th issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining us is Dr. Devin Consagra, who is a professor of medicine at Oregon Health Sciences University and director of the Portland Evidence-Based Synthesis Program at the Portland VA. We hope that you learn quite a bit from this podcast. Devin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was fascinated by the article that you and your colleagues wrote because so many people seem to think that cannabinoids are going to be a substitute for opiates, decrease opiate use, a good solution for chronic pain, which bedevils so many uh, general internists and family physicians. And to have someone actually look at the evidence is uh, very reassuring. I think the best place for us to start Uh, because you explain it so well in the paper, is to define cannabinoids, in particular, contrast THC and CBD. Thanks for having me, Dr. Centaur. So one of the tricky things with research on cannabis is that it it is not a singular thing, right? Cannabis sativa is the plant, uh, and the plant contains a number of cannabinoids, you know, over 140 compounds many of which we don't really know what they do, how they interact with one another, and you know, what kind of effects they produce on the body and mind. The two most well-known cannabinoids are THC or tetrahydrocannabinol and CBD or cannabidiol. And roughly speaking, these can be contrasted as THC being the major compound that causes the high, the psychoactive effects of cannabis. And CBD doesn't tend to cause the same sorts of CNS effects in terms of the psychoactive effects that you'd associate with THC or being high. And we're still learning more about what CBD does, but there are many other compounds that we are still learning about. Let's go to the big question. So as your group defined it, what was the big question that that you were trying to address with this paper and Please tell us how you're going to continue to follow this story uh, over the next several years. Sure. So this particular project was commissioned by the AHRQ, which is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And the context for it is not going to be surprising to anyone. You know, chronic pain is extremely common. It's difficult to treat. And we're trying to treat it in the midst of an opioid epidemic, which has been devastating. So there's a real interest and need to find 
uh, safe and effective alternatives for chronic pain treatment. And so that's partly why this report was commissioned. And it, it was designed as a living systematic review, right? So kind of look at all the evidence at baseline. And then uh, right now we're updating it every three months. And the plan is to follow the evidence for a total of five years and kind of see where, where it goes. So that's the that's the genesis of it. And the basic question is really, what are the benefits and harms of uh, cannabis for chronic pain? The larger report also looks, you know, is intended to look at other plant-based treatments for chronic pain, including things like Kratom, but that's not included in this manuscript and there honestly wasn't much information available in the published literature about it. Could you give us sort of a brief overview of the methods that you used to come up with the paper? Sure. It's a systematic review. So that means doing, you know, kind of exhaustive search of the published literature across several databases, winnowing down a large number of abstracts and titles to a potentially eligible set of studies, and then matching those against our pre-specified inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we ended up looking at studies that assess the benefits and harms of cannabis really any cannabis preparation on chronic pain and any type of chronic pain was eligible. We set a minimum follow-up criteria of four weeks. So the studies had to be at least four weeks in duration and, and otherwise we were open to, to, to anything. So one of the things that I really liked about this study was your cannabinoid rating system. And I think it's worthwhile to go over that especially since so many people are buying CBD products over the counter, even in Alabama and in other states, people are buying THC products and some have a mixture of the two. And I thought it was really, really clever the way that your group classified the studies according to a, a THC CBD ratio. So maybe you could talk about that. I agree. I think that's an important aspect of this. So one of the challenges to cannabis research is that there's so many different compounds in it, and there are many different routes of administration and, and ways of you know, extracting compounds from, from cannabis that it becomes challenging to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges, which is important when you're trying to understand what a body of literature says. Uh, so this classification scheme w goes you know, a little ways towards trying to create categories so that we can compare like to like. So we look at a couple different dimensions. One is the THC to CBD ratio, right? So that we kind of categorized uh, products that had high THC content relative to CBD. Then another category of compounds that had comparable amounts of THC and CBD. And then products that had low THC, but predominantly CBD. And then there are some other categories. Uh, you know, there's something called uh, CBDV and, and other things that are kind of just starting to be studied. And then there's another dimension to look at, which has to do with how isolated are these compounds, right? So you can think of the whole plant as containing, you know, the many compounds that we already talked about. And since we don't know how they all interact with one another, it's important to treat whole plant products as its own category. So you can have a high THC product that's whole plant, and, and we treat that as a category. You can also have synthetic products, which are basically lab-made versions of these compounds. So there's a synthetic form of THC, 
One's called dronabinol, another's called nabilone. Those are both FDA approved for other indications. And so those are two examples of synthetic forms of these compounds. And then you can also have extracted uh, forms of compounds. So these are where you have the whole plant and you extract some portion of the, of the plant for the product that's being used. Nabiximols, which is an oromucosal spray, uh, comparable amounts of THC and CBD is an example of one of those products that's extracted from the whole plant. So just trying to understand which study fits which category is a major problem. And that's one of the problems you have in, in trying to do the analyses is that you're talking about more fruits than just apples and oranges. That's <laughs> yes. right. Given all those difficulties, go over the results as, as you see them uh, now in uh, June of 2022. Understanding that if you're listening to this six months from now, you need to go to the website, which we'll advertise here in a few minutes. Sure. So, you know, the, the major kind of overall findings are that there are specific products that may provide on average a small uh, absolute effect of pain relief over the short term in patients with chronic pain, mainly neuropathic pain. And they tend to increase the risk of, you know, well-known side effects like dizziness and, and fatigue or feeling tired. And then drilling down a little bit more, the, the two products that we have the most evidence for, one is the Nabiximol spray that I mentioned, that's the oral mucosal spray. It's not available in the US, contains similar amounts of THC and CBD. And, and that's been uh, studied primarily in patients with neuropathic pain and appears to be possibly associated with a reduction in pain severity and associated with a greater proportion of patients who have a 30% or more response in pain and even some functional, uh, uh, you know, pain-related function improvements as well. Trade-off being increase in, in, in sedation and in dizziness over the short term. There's also some evidence that high THC-containing products, the synthetic forms uh, that we were discussing before, uh, may be associated with small to moderate reductions in pain severity. Was there enough data to look at CBD products, high CBD, low THC products? Yeah, unfortunately, and this is also a question I get from patients and friends and family all the time, it's about CBD, and we really don't have adequate evidence to comment on CBD. So there's just insufficient evidence about CBD. And I think that's really important since so many people are thinking about doing CBD, and then you get all these anecdotal reports, oh, this fixed everything in my life. We know that is unlikely to be true in a randomized controlled trial. One of the big hopes is that perhaps some of these formulations might be able to decrease opiate use and, and help modify our opiate crisis. Did you find any evidence on that one way or the other? So this particular review wasn't designed to look at that question. The evidence overall on that question of whether or not cannabis can serve as a substitute for opioids is mixed, right? So there's People are probably aware of from the popular press and just billboards around town. We have, I live in Oregon where cannabis is, is legal. So there's billboards advertising these papers. So there was a paper that got a lot of press a few years ago that looked at the association between medical marijuana laws passed by states. States that had passed medical marijuana laws were found to have lower um, opioid related mortality rates. 
Uh, however, when a different group analyzed the same data and just extended the period of analysis, they found the opposite effect. And it just, you know, provides a cautionary note about uh, interpreting these ecologic studies. You know, patient level studies have been mixed. They haven't, you know, when you look at cohort studies, looking at individual patients and whether or not you follow them forward and they actually reduce opiate use, it's, it's not clear. There are some studies that show that they don't. Uh, the, the largest study was conducted in Australia and didn't find that people using cannabis had lower rates of opiate use over time. So I think the bottom line for clinicians and patients on that question, which is an important one, is that it's not a given that cannabis is going to be a substitute for opioids. So if patients intend to use it as a substitute, I think it's really important to be mindful about doing that, um, being explicit about it, helping patients uh, track it over time, really follow up with that outcome in mind. Um, uh, uh, otherwise, I don't think we have adequate data to say that it's, you know, kind of, sure, go ahead and use it and you're going to reduce opiate use. And then obviously people uh, do and should understand that there are good evidence-based treatments available for things like opiate use disorder um, that, that can help people reduce use. Right. And, and we've done uh, a couple of podcasts on that one that's been released and one is soon to be released and will be released before this uh, particular podcast. Let's sort of summarize and start with the limitations of the data we have so far. What you think are, are the main takeaways from this? If people are interested in this five-year study and want to follow it, uh, if you could mention the website uh, where they can go and look and see what you're doing in this larger AHRQ study. Yeah, so I think the major take-home, sir, there, there's a couple of products that show some promise in reducing pain in patients with neuropathic pain, but the major caveats, and these are big caveats, are that the data is short-term, that the longest studies we have are, you know, a little less than four months. Chronic pain is a chronic condition, and patients may be taking uh, treatments for many months or years. So, you know, I think it's important to understand what the longer term effects are. We don't know if the initial effects we see here are attenuated over time, if there's tolerance that develops or central sensitization of pain or other things. We just don't know that. It's important to understand that other pain conditions like low back pain, arthritis-related pain, cancer-related pain have not been well studied. And also important to know that the formulations that have been studied and for which there is promise are not necessarily the things that people are gonna see most commonly in dispensaries. You know, the stuff that people are gonna get in dispensaries has not been well studied. We just don't know. There have been a few studies looking at whole plant products and, you know, uh, smoking or edibles, but uh, not adequate data to know whether or not those, those work for treatment of chronic pain. The last caveat I, I would mention here, I think is an important one, and it has to do with dosing. So the doses on average in these studies that showed promise were like, if you look at the nabiximal sprays, the total amount of THC on average in the treatment group was, you know, about 20 milligrams, maybe 25 milligrams over 24 hours. In the high THC containing compound studies, the average dose of THC was a little less than that. There are products in stores now, you know, 50 milligram edibles 
uh, in, in highly concentrated forms of cannabis uh, as defined by THC concentration that are important to recognize the difference between that and what's been what's been studied. So if you're able to get either uh, medical marijuana prescription or live in a state that that, uh, has dispensaries, knowing the dose, if you're going to try this as a a pain relief option, the dose is very important. The dose is important, and it's important to recognize that that what you're going to see in the dispensaries is not necessarily what's been studied in the studies. Right. Often what's been studied in the studies that the total THC dose may be lower than what many people are using or have access to in, in dispensaries. Right. And perhaps there'll be a study of that in the future uh, for you to compare. Yeah, absolutely. And what's that website? Right. So the, the chronic pain report is in two places. Uh, it's on the uh, AHRQ website. Uh, the, uh, and then... We also, uh, I, I run a project called STEM, uh, which stands for systemically, Systematically Testing the Evidence on Marijuana. Uh, and we have a visual abstract of the findings, which we update alongside the report and, and some other summaries, along with a bunch of other clinician-facing materials. And that's at www.cannabisevidence.org. That's wonderful. I think you've really shed a lot of light into this. There may be some benefits there are definitely side effects that people should be aware of. And the bi- the biggest thing that I got from your paper is that just because you say you're giving a product that comes from cannabis doesn't mean there's any equality at all. There's a wide variety and some types of products might do a better job than others. And we really don't have enough data to know. I think that that's fair. You know, one of the bottom lines is there's a lot left to learn. And hopefully there are some laws that have been passed by the Senate and the House that would make cannabis research easier to do in this country. And so hopefully those will pass and we'll have better data in the coming years. Well, thank you and your colleagues so much for doing this study and you, Devin, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting study points out that we really don't have sufficient data to know exactly what to think about cannabinoids and pain. We do have some clues. We know that with high THC to CBD ratios, there are studies that suggest some relief from neuropathic pain, although these patients have increased dizziness and uh, sleepiness as side effects of the uh, THC. We're not sure about the right dose of THC or the right way to deliver it, and so our data are inadequate at this point in time. We also have inadequate data to know whether or not uh, cannabinoids could uh, decrease opiate use. To me, the big bottom line from this report is that we need more studies to better understand the role of uh, cannabinoids in the management of chronic pain. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, and disclosures for all speakers, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated.